Well, welcome back to uh, Centerpoint and uh, our course of uh, study. Uh, we are in the middle of a study of Christology, the doctrine of Christ. And uh, this fall, we are concentrating on the person of Christ. Uh, in the spring, we'll talk about the work uh, of Christ. Tonight I want us to think about the Incarnation. Last week we were looking at the doctrine of the virgin birth and what it meant. And uh, there'll be uh, one or two uh, areas uh, tonight, perhaps uh, of repetition, but uh, we want to move on now from uh, the idea of the virgin conception, uh, the conception of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary, to the actual incarnation itself. Uh, the word incarnation comes from uh, ecclesiastical Latin. Uh, you, you understand that for the best part of a thousand years and more, uh, theology in the West uh, was done pretty much exclusively in the medium of Latin and a lot of these uh, terms, particularly terms relating to the creeds, creeds like the Nicene Creed or the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed or the Chalcedonian Creed, uh, creeds of the 4th and 5th century, uh, these creeds were written both in Greek for the Eastern Church and in Latin for the Western Church. And this word incarnation uh, comes from the Latin incarnatio, or the verb incarnare, uh, a person who, em who uh, embodies in the flesh uh, a deity, a spirit. Now let's, uh, let's talk, uh, we have to get uh, into this, uh, this doctrine somehow, some way, and let's begin uh, with a theological question uh, one, one that has preoccupied um, theologians for sure, uh, some of it in a helpful way and some of it not in a helpful way. Um, th the question has been asked about the necessity of the incarnation. Was it absolutely necessary uh, for Jesus to become incarnate? Now there's a kind of hypothetical question that lies at the back of that which isn't helpful. Uh, could Jesus, could God have saved sinners by some other means? Could God just have willed salvation? Uh, if, you, if you prioritize the will of God, and, and there, are, there have been traditions in theology that have made the will of God to be absolutely predominant, so God could will anything, uh, and he could, he could have willed uh, the salvation of, uh, of sinners. Uh, that's a very unhelpful question. I don't regard that question as something that uh, we should think about too much at all. Uh, it goes beyond uh, what Scripture tells us, and clearly Scripture tells us that God willed salvation through the death of his Son. Uh, whether there was anything uh, possible, remotely, hypothetically possible beyond that is, is beyond our ability uh, to, uh, to think about. Uh, it's a question that's unhelpful. Uh, and uh, uh, Let's approach it from a different point of view, and let's approach it from the point of view of uh, the first name here, Anselm of uh, Canterbury, 11th uh, century uh, theologian of considerable significance, a British um, Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, and uh, wrote, among other things, um, a, a very important text that's still uh, read and examined and uh, discussed today by seminary students at least. Um, a thousand years later, uh, it, it was written in Latin, of course, Cur Deus Homo, meaning why the God-man? Why did God become man? The necessity of the incarnation. It has in it a, a character uh, by the name of Bozo, very aptly named. Bozo is a little dense. He doesn't quite get why would God have to be so extravagant in, in becoming flesh, in becoming incarnate? 
Uh, and at uh, a certain point, uh, Bozo is told, uh, Nondum considerasti quanti ponderis sit peccatum, a very famous expression uh, that uh, seminary students learn and are tested on. Uh, you have not yet considered the gravity of sin. In other words, the reason for the necessity of the incarnation. Why did God have to become a man? And the answer is sin. Because of sin, the sin of Adam, God has to become another Adam. He has to send his son, the Lord Jesus, to become the second Adam. Extravagant, certainly. But that extravagance is actually necessitated by a consideration of sin. Man cannot save himself. Uh, We saw last week that the very doctrine of the virgin birth is a judgment upon humanity. That man needs a savior, but he isn't capable of producing that savior. That an act of divine sovereignty, a miracle, has to take place in the very production of the second uh, Adam. Uh, Then then secondly here, uh, just a little note here about the study of the incarnation. Uh, This is true not just of the incarnation, but of a great deal of things that you and I have been thinking about and will continue to think about uh, over the next few years if God spares us. You know, we ask questions that that are difficult. I'm amazed and uh, tremendously encouraged uh, the fact that you keep on coming. Uh, and some of you have been insistent that I don't uh, water this down uh, and, and uh, that, that we keep at a certain level here, even if it goes, you know, over the top of our heads sometimes. And sometimes it goes over the top of my head too. And uh, when we talk about the incarnation, we, we are talking about two natures, a, a divine nature and a human nature, but there's only one He, there's only one him. There's only one essence. There's only one person. There's only one uh, who is both divine and human. So he is everywhere present and located in one place only at the same time. That's fairly easy to say. The, The words that I've used to say that are not difficult words. But none of you understand that. There's no way that you can understand or comprehend the hypostatic union, the union of two natures in one person. And so some, some theologians, and certainly some non-theologians, the, the no creed but the Bible folk, suggest that all of this is a complete waste of time. More than that, that it's, there's, something, well, there's something wrong, there's something unethical about asking tough, difficult questions and trying to put um, together difficult uh, truths. There's a touch of it in Philip Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon is, uh, is uh, roughly around the same time as uh, Martin Luther, uh, one of the great founders of a movement known as Lutheranism. Uh, and uh, uh, in his preface uh, to what we might call his systematic, uh, theo- uh, his systematic theology, uh, we do better to adore the mysteries of deity than to investigate them. You know, what we should do, actually, it's nice of him to say that, but what he went on to do, of course, was to investigate them. Otherwise, what's the point of the book? <laughs> right? So the book is full of investigation, uh, even though he, he makes this rather pious comment at the beginning, uh, and you understand that, that you could lift this sentence out of Philip Melanchthon and, and say, you know, what we really need to do is to worship Jesus. We need to have a kumbaya moment and close our eyes and, and worship Jesus and not talk about all this theology. And, and, that, and that movement is, is putting your head against your spirit or your head against your heart. And actually, I think that God created us with heads and hearts. We are, we are meant to worship God with our minds as much as anything else. The, the way we talk about Jesus is also a form of worship. 
He created us as inquisitive beings. We were created to be explorers. Adam was created with a boundary that necessitated him asking, what's on the other side of the boundary? What's on the other side of the river? We were meant to go, if I may cite this one more time, to go boldly where no man has gone before. Now we do it reverently. We do it circumspectly. We must always have Scripture provide for us the boundary lines. But Scripture describes Jesus as divine, and Scripture describes Jesus as human. And Scripture says there is only one Lord Jesus. There's only one He. So there's a sense in which we, we are almost bound to think about this doctrine. How how are two quite distinct natures united in one he, one him, one person? Well, let's dive in. Uh, John 1.14, the prologue of John's gospel. You remember John begins, in the beginning was uh, the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the, only, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then, in your mind, go forward to the most famous verse in Scripture, at least for us in the 21st century, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So there is a son who was God, with God, was God, who became flesh, who was given by the Father. That's the introduction to the incarnation. What do we mean, what does John mean when he says that the word became flesh? Right, there's a logos. In the beginning was the word. The, the word in Greek is logos. There was a logos who was, who was with God and was God. And yet there's only one God. He was side by side with God and yet there's only one God. He is in communion with God. He is in fellowship with God. But there's only one God. Within the one God there is there is Logos and there is the Father. There's also the Spirit, but that's an issue for another time. So you have, you, have, you have one who is God, who is with God, but there's only one God. And this one who is with God becomes flesh. How does he become flesh? The second person of the Godhead then becomes uh, that should be incarnate, becomes incarnate. Now, there are two problems that face us immediately. One is, it's not the Father who becomes incarnate. It's not the Holy Spirit who becomes incarnate. The Father never takes human flesh. The Spirit never takes human flesh. It is only the Son who takes human flesh. That's the first thing. And, and secondly... It is the Son, it is the Logos who becomes flesh. It's not his divine nature that becomes flesh. Now that's very important. In the process of the incarnation, nothing has happened to the divine nature. The divine nature remains divine nature. He was God, he remains God during the incarnation, and he remains God during his exaltation, and he is God today because he'll be God yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing happens to the divine nature, but it happens to the him, the he, the second person of the Trinity. It is the son, it is he not the divine nature that becomes flesh. We are only starting. This is just the beginning. You dive in here and you say with Augustine, 
I see the depths, but I can't see the bottom. There are mysteries here. There are profundities here. But let's move on. He became flesh. Uh, notice the tense in verse 14. Uh, agoneto in Greek. It's an aorist middle indicative. That's probably more information than you need. Um, and you need to contrast that with, with verse 1. In the beginning was... Uh, an imperfect indicative. Um, if this was, uh, if this was a, a lesson in Greek, we could spend an hour um, underlining the difference and the significant difference, the huge significant difference between the use of, a, of, a, of a, an imperfect and the use of an aorist tense. In just changing the tense, he was God, that was the state of his being, but he became flesh. The heiress is often a tense that's used for, for something that happens in a moment. That happens in, in a point in time. That's, that's, as we might say, punctilia. He was God and then something happens. Something happens that contrasts with what he was. He was God, but now in addition to being God, in addition to his divine nature, he becomes, he, he takes human flesh. And he dwelt, he dwelt among us. And um, the verb that uh, John uses is the verb for tabernacle. He takes a verbal form of the noun tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. John, of course, is alluding to the Old Testament. In other words... The, there is an impermanence. That's what, when you think of the tabernacle, you think of two things. You think of the presence of God, but you also think of the presence of God in an impermanent form. It's moving about. The tabernacle will give way to a temple, which is permanent. The, the tabernacle was, was, was a temporary phenomenon. So, so something is being said here. He pitched his tabernacle... And it's the impermanence, not the impermanence of the incarnation. He always is incarnate. He always will be incarnate. There never will be a moment in which Jesus will not be incarnate. Uh, a verse in 1 Corinthians 15, notwithstanding, we'll get there some other time. Right? So Jesus will always be incarnate. It is the impermanence of the earthly mode of his existence. He is incarnate in, in a humiliated form. Now he is incarnate. He still has a body. There is still a hypostatic union. There is still a divine nature and a human nature in hypostatic union in one person. That, that's still true. But the human nature of Jesus is now in glory. He is exalted. In, in the language of Philippians 2, he is hyper exalted. It's still human nature, but it's no longer human nature in its low condition, as the Shorter Catechism describes it. It is, it is human nature in its exalted nation, uh, nature. And then John says, we beheld his glory. And uh, he may be referring to the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, that something of the glory of, of the divine nature shone uh, through or round about his, his human nature. He may be referring perhaps to more than that, and he may, and he may also be referring to other incidents in uh, the life of Jesus. <coughs> Second Corinthians 8-9, uh, text that's often uh, cited during the time of the offering. Uh, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. A lot of ministers cite that text when the offering plate is going around. Uh, Paul, of course, uh, was uh, raising an offering. Uh, it wasn't a weekly offering he was raising. He was raising an offering uh, for the relief of poverty in Jerusalem. A two-, three-year project. Uh, in which he went through uh, uh, the, the churches in Macedonia and Achaia and, and other places, uh, trying to bring, I think, some kind of political um, uh, 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 
the, the, the Jewish Gentile problem that existed. Uh, church in Jerusalem was largely Jewish, somewhat suspicious of what Paul was doing among Gentile churches. If Paul could get Gentile churches to give money to help the poor in Jerusalem, Gentiles helping Jews, that would politically help the, the fragmentation uh, between the church in Jerusalem and the, and the Gentile churches. It didn't work. It was a good idea, but it didn't really uh, work. But uh, in the middle of, uh, of uh, talking about uh, uh, and encouraging, indeed, the Corinthian church to give towards this project, he cites, he cites this, uh, this text. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus, uh, that though uh, he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's a statement about the incarnation. And then uh, Philippians 2 uh, that we're looking at on Sunday mornings and, and we'll come back to look at Philippians 2 in more detail in a, in a later Wednesday evening, two, three weeks from now. Uh, I want us just to look at Philippians 2, uh, this, this song, this common uh, Christie, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself nothing, or he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself uh, even to the point of death, and so on, that, that passage. I don't want to look at all the, of Philippians 2 tonight, so I'm just going to pick out a couple of things, and then we'll return to Philippians 2 later. But notice, uh, notice it begins in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, talking about the pre-existence of Jesus, right before the incarnation, before he took the form of a servant, before he was found in fashion as a man, he was already in the form of God. And he goes on to say, uh, um, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now there's a a little bit of a discussion as to whether uh, Paul is intending to mean he didn't have to reach out and grab hold of deity because it was already his, or he didn't hold on, he didn't grasp and hold on to deity in a, in a kind of greedy way, in a kind of way that suggested, I, I, will, I, will, I will never become something else. I will never, in addition to being God, become incarnate. It, it's, a, it's a technical Greek thing as to, as to which one of those Paul intends. The ESV has gone uh, with this rendition that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped because it was already his. He didn't have to reach out and and grasp hold of it because it was already his. And then he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Now after preaching my sermon on Sunday morning and, and you all learnt the use of the word uh, kenosis and some of you have been kind enough to send me emails using the word kenosis in uh, rather colourful and imaginative uh, ways uh, this week. I then uh, realized uh, that I'm reading from uh, the 2011 edition of the ESV and the Pew Bible is the 2002 edition of the ESV uh, which doesn't have the word emptied in it at all. Uh, because in 2002 the ESV uh, had he made himself nothing. Now a little sidebar, the ESV emerged because of a spat with the NIV that the NIV was using a principle of translation known as dynamic equivalence. Instead of word-for-word -word translation, it was using uh, euphemisms and so on. Uh, and, and lo and behold, here is the ESV doing precisely the same uh, in Philippians 2 because of the problem of saying he emptied himself because the next question is, of what did he empty himself? And if you, if you suggest he, he was in the form of God and he emptied himself of the form of God, you have a doctrine of incarnation by divine suicide. Because God was no longer God, which is obviously not correct. So the 2011 ESV 
corrected its, its, its own uh, translation policy uh, by actually doing what it said it was intending to do all along, namely a word-for-word, word-by-word translation using, using the word empty. He emptied himself. Uh, and I suggested on uh, Sunday morning that we should understand emptying here in the sense of the text itself, not emptying by subtraction, but emptying by addition. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He was in the form of God and he took, in addition, the form of a servant. So you've got, you've got two natures, the form of God and the form of a servant. There's only one he, but, there's, but, he's, but he has the form of God and he has the form of a servant. He has the likeness of men. And he humbles himself, and he humbles himself even to the point of death. Now, we'll come back to Philippians 2, um, but uh, let's move on to Romans 8.3, another biblical text that speaks of the incarnation. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. A very important text. Um, Two two things to note here. Um, Paul could have said, but he didn't, that Christ came in the likeness of flesh. Now he didn't say that because if he had said that Jesus simply had the likeness of flesh, he wasn't really flesh, he was just like flesh, That would be an error known as docetism. We'll talk about docetism in just a few minutes, but but hold that thought. Docetism is the view that Jesus was just an apparition. He had a physical form, but it was was a ghost. You perhaps could put your hand through him. It it was like an apparition. He didn't really have a true human body. Now, you you may think, who in the world thinks that? Then you need to read First John again because there were people that John writes to who believed just that. And John has to say, he who does not believe that Jesus came in the flesh is antichrist. So John is obviously dealing with some people who didn't believe that Jesus actually had a physical body. Now you can understand why you might get that way because you're trying to defend his deity. And you defend his deity so much that, you, that you're embarrassed that, that he has a human body. Hold that thought in your head. We'll come back to Docetism in a minute. I'm still in Romans 8.3. One of the things Paul could have said but didn't say is that Christ came in the likeness of flesh. That would be a docetic statement. He could have said Christ came in sinful flesh, which would make Jesus a sinner, which would be a denial of the impeccability of Christ. It would be a denial of the sinlessness of Christ. There was nothing sinful about, about Jesus, not at any point in time. Now, a little, a little sidebar here, and it's a, it's, it's a, it's a rather difficult, uh, somewhat abstruse notion, but it's raised its head. It's raised its head in our own denomination uh, some 20 or 30 years ago uh, and in our, in our seminary uh, 20 or 30, maybe, maybe 35 years ago uh, through the influence of Karl Barth. Uh, Karl Barth suggested that Jesus took human nature but he took human nature that was like the fallen human nature of Adam. What drove Karl Barth was what drove uh, early Christian uh, apologists um, like Gregory of Nazianzus uh, in, a, in another debate uh, uh, on Christology, uh, that unless Jesus assumes our nature, and unless Jesus assumes our nature as it actually is, then he cannot save us. In order to save us, he has to become exactly like us. So uh, Karl Barth and, and, and others, uh, T.F. Torrance would be another name, Uh, For example, uh, advocating a view that Jesus assumed fallen uh, human nature. And I've got a couple of quotations. You can read them at your leisure some other time. Uh, The problems with that view is that fallenness, there are three essential problems with it. One is that fallenness is not 
intrinsic to humanity. You know, fallenness was not an attribute of Adam and Eve in the garden before they fell. You can be a human being and not be fallen. So in order to save humanity, you don't, you don't have to become, you don't have to assume fallen human nature. But what does fallen human nature mean? If Jesus had fallen human nature, fallen human nature is just a euphemism for, 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 for an entity that God regards as guilt-worthy. Right? If you have fallen human nature, you are punishable. If you have fallen human nature, then, then it, is, it is inappropriate for that fallen human nature to inherit eternal life. If Jesus had fallen human nature, he would, he would automatically incur the wrath of God. Right? You cannot, it, it, seems, it seems to me, you cannot have fallen human nature and not the imputation of sin. Right? So, so you, you cannot have Jesus as, as impeccable. You cannot have Jesus as sinless, but also have fallen human nature. The two, the two, the two don't go together. Well, let's go on. Uh, we, let's talk about two particular denials of the humanity of Jesus. One is docetism. Um, docetism is, is, oh, here's a word, monophysite. Monophysite. Mono, one. Fusis. Um, nature. Jesus only has one nature. Monophysite. There are lots of different forms of monophysitism, right? And, and docetism is a form of monophysite Christology. If you can repeat that sentence, you will get an A+. Uh, let's talk about docetism. Docetism arises in the first century, I think, mainly because of its... Because of Greek philosophy. In Greek philosophy, Plato, for example, in, in Phaedo, um, talks about this, the body being the prison house of the soul. The, the body, the body is, is, is something, there's something suspicious. There's something inherently unworthy about, about the physical body. Right? That, that is fairly dominant in Greek philosophy. It's fairly dominant in Plato. It's not surprising that as Christianity is on an, an apologetic with the surrounding culture, largely Greek culture, especially in the Hellenistic world, that, that Christianity would find it problematic to say that Jesus is sinless, he's God, he's Messiah, he's Savior, and he has a, and he has a physical body. Right? That would be countercultural in Greek thought. So it's not surprising that some forms of Christianity begin to develop a Christology that, that holds in suspicion the true physical body uh, of Jesus. His flesh wasn't real. Uh, not a great problem today in, in Christian circles, for sure, but it is, of course, uh, still a problem in Islam. And I've given you a quotation there from Surah uh, 4, uh, 157, 158. Uh, and because of their saying, we slew the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, Allah's messenger, they slew him not, they slew him not, nor crucified him, but it appeared so unto them. And lo, those who disagree concerning it are in doubt thereof. They have no knowledge thereof, save pursuit of a conjecture. They slew him not for certain, but Allah took him up unto himself. Allah was ever mighty wise. Now that's, that's, the, that's uh, part of uh, the teaching of Islam. Islam has fundamental problems with the idea of God having human flesh. Right? So it's, it's, a, it's a form... Uh, if I can get away with it for a minute, it's a form of docetism. Right? So, so a form of docetism exists within Islam with regard to their understanding uh, of, of Jesus. What is definitely alive and kicking in the church, and is probably alive and kicking in our own church, uh, for sure, uh, is Apollinarianism. 
Apollinarianism. Uh, let's be absolutely clear, Apollinarianism is a heresy, was declared a, a heresy uh, by the Chalcedonian Creed in 451 AD. Uh, it's, it's, it's coined after a, a man by the name of Apollinarius. You know, Apollinarius may have got a little bit of a bad rap. Um, we, we don't know a great deal about Apollinarius except through his enemies. Right, so enemies who quote him and perhaps misquote him, or at least quote the worst bits of him. So, so he gets, uh, and there are other figures in church history who, 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 who we think of it probably in the worst possible way because because of the because of the way they've been cited by their opponents. Um, so that's a historical matter. Let's push that out of the side again. Uh, do you remember the saying, uh, Apollinarianism? like Docetism, is a form of monophysite Christology, of one-nature Christology. Not two natures, not divine and human nature, but one nature. Like Docetism, Apollinarianism is, is nervous about ascribing the, the, the true humanity of Jesus in Apollinarianism, it's not, it's not the physical body, as in Docetism, it's the mind or the soul or the spirit. Jesus did not have a human mind. The logos, the divine mind, occupied the mind of Jesus. Now let's look at uh, scripture, Colossians 2.9, in him dwells all the fullness of of the Godhead bodily fullness, major issue in in uh, in the church at uh, uh, Colossae, uh, that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily, in bodily form, and that means that Jesus has not only a, a human body, but he also has what what uh, what our catechism, for example, calls a reasonable uh, soul. Now let's, uh, let's expand on this. What, what do we mean? We mean, first of all, that Jesus had a human mind. Now, he also has a divine mind. He has two natures. He has a divine mind. A divine mind that knows everything. A divine mind that is omniscient. He knows everything that has happened. He knows everything that potentially could happen. He has all possible knowledge in his divine mind. But he also has a human mind. A human mind that is finite. It's a mind that can be contained within a skull. It's a mind, a brain that is, you know, Jim Augustine isn't here tonight, so I can, I can say this without appearing to be a complete dummy here. Um, it's a brain about this size. How much can that brain hold? Right, a lot, for sure. But not omniscience. It's finite. Uh, Jesus tells us, uh, for example, um, of the day of the second coming. Of that day and hour, no man knows, not, not even the Son, but only the Father. It was information that he did not have. There is no reason to think that Jesus knew the formula for benzene. Right? Which is, what is it? C6H6. There is, there is no reason to think that the human mind of Jesus knew what a Laplace transformation is. There is absolutely no reason to believe that the human mind of Jesus knew how to map the human genome. It, it was not information that he had. It was information beyond his time. It was information that wasn't necessary for him as a human being in order to achieve his purpose as the Redeemer. Are you balking at that? Is that making you a little nervous? To the extent that that's making you a little nervous is the extent to which Apollinarianism is alive and well in 2013. 
Um, it is absolutely essential if Jesus assumes true humanity, becomes a second Adam, that he has a true human mind. A true human mind. A, a human psyche. So that there are, so that in Jesus, you know, when Jesus says, for example, when Lazarus dies, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, this was a home that he would stay in whenever he was down in Jerusalem. They were friends. Uh, he knew them well. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, Motel 6 um, for Jesus when he came to Jerusalem to, to, uh, to engage in, in Passover or, or, or whatever. When he learns that Lazarus is dead, he asks, where have you laid him? Now, there is no reason to say, well, of course Jesus knew where they had laid him. His divine mind knew where he had laid him because his divine mind knew everything. But, but in his human mind, the Jesus, the Jesus that is represented in the Gospels, th there is no reason to think that Jesus knew where Lazarus was buried. He's asking a question. Tell, tell me where you laid him. And there is, there is nothing... There is nothing about the suggestion that Jesus had to ask where Lazarus' body was that somehow or other questions my belief in the deity of Jesus. We're not talking about the deity of Jesus. We're talking about the humanity of Jesus. He has a human mind. How did Jesus... Um, well, we'll come back to it. Jesus' human mind was not omniscient. He knew everything in his divine mind. His human mind was finite. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with men, Luke says in chapter 2. He grew in wisdom. He learned things. He asked questions. He drew logical deductions. Now, a mind that is not sinful and is not hardwired to be sinful is capable of extraordinary thought, I'm perfectly certain. But it's not a divine mind. Right? Two natures. If he has a human nature, he has a human mind. He has a human will. Actually, let me go back. <coughs> the way the way Jesus acquires knowledge in his human mind is a human way of acquiring knowledge. Right? We, we mustn't think that when Jesus wants some information, he can just plug in a little, a little, a little um, hard drive to his divine mind and download gigabytes of information and say, oh, yes, I know. Right? How does the human mind go about acquiring information? And Jesus acquired that information from the Holy Spirit, for sure. He acquired information from his mother Mary. He acquired information from reading and studying and learning and learning the Bible. He acquired information through, through the normal processes of human inquiry. He has a human mind. He has a human will. A, a human way of making choices and decisions and setting goals, and having aspirations, including an element of desire. You know, was Jesus ever in a dilemma? Well, read Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I think, I think the, the reality of what the cup represents in terms of its Old Testament imagery, the reality of that, the reality of crucifixion, 
that now, that now is inevitable. As it, as it dawns on him, not just, not just the physicality of crucifixion, but of enduring the, the wrath of his heavenly father. As he, as he thinks about that, Jesus is saying, is there not some other way? I'm in a dilemma, not, not my will, his human will here. It's not his divine will. He's not talking about his divine. His divine will is the same as his heavenly father's. His divine will is never in a quandary. There is never disagreement between the father and the son. That that, that would bring God himself into conflict. It's his human will. Not my will, but yours. Be be done. Monophysite is one nature. Monotholite. Monotholitism. Monophysitism, monotholitism, thelo, Greek for will, monothelo, one, one will. Apollinarius was advocating a view of monotholitism, of only one will, and Chalcedon insists that there are two wills. There is a will that properly belongs to his human nature, and there is a will that properly belongs to his divine nature. Jesus has two wills, two minds, two wills. He has human affections or, or human emotions. Now we just went through a series with uh, Dr. Ferguson on the emotional life of our, of our Lord uh, last uh, fall. The anger, the sorrow, the amazement, wonder, awe, joy. Uh, He experiences the full range of human emotions, non-sinful human emotions. A human mind, a human will, human emotions, a, a human psyche, a human psychology. The permanence of the incarnation. The permanence of the incarnation. He remains two natures. Divine nature, human nature. He, reva- he remains two natures, one person, forever. He is two natures and one person in a state of humiliation. And he is two natures and one person in a state of exaltation. But he remains incarnate forever. Now, I know there's a text in 1 Corinthians 15 when, when it looks as though Jesus is handing back something to his Father and God will be all in all. And, and some read into that that Jesus will no longer be incarnate, that he kind of hands back his human body. But I, I, I really don't think at all that that's what that text is saying. I, I think that Jesus will remain incarnate and our mediator forever and ever and ever. Uh, So that the vision uh, that we see in Revelation 7, as John catches a little glimpse of Jesus on the other side, and what does he see? He sees a lamb standing in the center of the throne and in charge of the scroll and turning the pages of history. But he occupies that throne as a lamb with its throat cut. He is... He is, he is standing at the center of the throne, but he's a lamb with its throat cut. He is, he is in charge. He is God. He has a divine nature. This is, this is a, a picture now, but he has divine nature and human nature. He, he, the, the vision that's given to John uh, beyond the veil of space and time is of a, a Jesus uh, who remains the God-man, two natures in one uh, person. Um, the extra Calvinisticum, my, my time has gone. I can't even begin to go into it. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a mystery all into itself. Uh, I'll ask, answer questions about it if you wish. Um, but it belongs here in the logic of, of things. But uh, the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus has a true human body, human mind, human will, human affections, 
human psyche. Two distinct natures in one person. Now, how do those two natures relate? How is there only one he and there are two natures? Well, that's a question that we'll consider in the next few weeks, for sure. Uh, Let's pray together. Father, we are amazed and, and dumbfounded indeed in awe, in in wonder at the Christmas story of the enfleshment of the Son of God. We We can conjure pictures in our mind of a baby in a stable, of a a young boy playing in the streets in Nazareth, of a young man uh, at the age of 12 in the temple of of a fully grown man walking the sands of Palestine, of a 33-year-old man nailed to a cross. But we cannot fathom the depths of the two natures and the one person, the one he, the one him, and how these two natures relate to each other. We thank you for the incarnation, for it indeed was necessary that someone become a second Adam to stand in our room and place and obey the law in all of its detail and in perfection for us, to lay down his life as a sacrifice for the guilt of our sins, that our sins should be reckoned to his account and his obedience reckoned to ours so that by faith in him by that double transaction we may be reckoned to be in a right and saving relationship with yourself so bless us as we think and contemplate these uh, truths together we ask it in Jesus name Amen